This Week in HPC. Superconducting supercomputers. And a deep dive into artificial intelligence. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening in to another episode of This Week in HPC. I'm Addison Snell, back in the chair again this week after my trip last week to South Africa, and I'm joined, as usual, by Michael Feldman. We're with Intersect 360 Research. How's it going, Michael? Very well, Addison. Welcome back. Hey, thanks a lot. It was a great trip, and This Week in HPC is distributed by our friends at top500.org. Michael, uh, some interesting news stories this week as we're getting close to the end of the year. The news isn't really uh, slowing down, and uh, you found a couple of good ones, including this isn't uh, conducting computers. This is superconducting supercomputers. I feel like I want to call Wiley Coyote and get him involved with the analysis here. <laughs> yeah. Super genius. Superconducting. Yeah, this is something uh, people have talked about for a while, superconducting basically computing, um, but the idea here is to build something that, that actually can can work on the scale of a supercomputer. And this is something that uh, is a project now started by the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, IARPA, mm-hmm. um, within the intelligence community. And they, they've put this five-year project together to actually build a superconducting computer that can that can work at scale with a couple of uh, different technologies, one for logic and one for memory. Yeah, this is a uh, possibly a five-year project. They're at least saying it's a multi-year research effort. Major grant going to IBM, Raytheon, BBN, and, and Northrop Grumman to go research the use of these superconducting materials to potentially bring us around next generation supercomputing. So we're still in the von Neumann world, but we're trying try to move away from silicon and build these circuits a little differently. Right. The problem with uh, CMOS, is, as people well know, is it's running, it's reaching sort of the end of its of its evolution as far as Moore's Law goes. But it's, it's basically plateaued out on speed and power because of uh, of other aspects of the technology. So one of the major problems of course is heat and always has been. Right. And and the advantage here of superconducting is basically it places the material the the circuits that you're going to be using for this uh, into into a state where the electrons just flow through them freely. The atoms aren't bouncing across into things and creating heat. It's it's flowing very f- freely through this material. And that gives you two things. It gives you that power advantage in that you don't create that heat, but it also lets you speed up the processor quite a bit. So instead of a, you know, a three or four gigahertz uh, processor, you can potentially get something into the hundreds of gigahertz initially. So that's 100 times faster than what we're doing now, and at a much at 10 or 100 times better power efficiencies. So we're looking at the research into these kinds of materials that if you make them very cold, as you were pointing out, near absolute zero at a couple of kelvins, that you can create these very fast circuits going forward. Some of the best um, write-up of this really came from Tiffany Trader in HPC Wire, where she had uh, an interview with Dr. Mark Mannheimer, uh, looking at uh, some of the extrapolation of this and, and how it, it could potentially put you on a road to uh, exascale within an affordable power budget. 
Right, Manheimer there works at the uh, the cryogenic computer complexity program there, so he manages that program. So he's going to sort of drive this forward. And and right, I mean the the conversation there was he basically felt this was this was a prime technology that would move uh, people or the computer industry beyond exascale. I mean, it's it's one thing to create a, a, a 20 or a 40 megawatt system at, at one exaflop, and maybe you could refine that even after Moore's Law maybe came to an end with other technologies. But to get something to move into tens of exaflops or hundreds of exaflops, uh, that would be a real trick with, without coming into another type of technology. And this could do that. I mean, they're, they're projecting a, a two megawatt Exaflop supercomputer could be built with uh, superconducting technology, and that's that's at least ten times better than than what anybody's looking at right now for for conventional technology. Michael, we were talking about the cryogenics here and the need to make these extremely cold, and you were pointing out that this is some of the same technology that we see in the quantum computing uh, implementations with D-Wave. Right. They're using, again, they're using some exotic circuitry there, not CMOS. And uh, to get the quantum effect, they're actually putting it down to very near absolute zero again, something like minus 250 plus uh, centigrade Celsius. So, uh, yeah, it's good for a lot of these different technologies. But again, uh, you, you need to use much more exotic circuitry. So that's sort of the, that's sort of the research that, that needs to be uh, solved here. And then how to make these circuits. It's not like you can go to a fab here and say, build me this circuit with, uh, you know, niobium nitride. They don't do that yet. So it, right. it's, it's quite a bit of work. Well, I guess the big question that you have to think about is how realistic is this? I mean, I, I think what it really underlines is that is that the industry is casting out to how are we going to continue to build faster computers beyond the next five years and into the next 10 years, into the next 20 and 50 years, if we want computing technologies, not just for the world's most powerful supercomputer, but for the volume of the market as well, to continue to get more powerful. How are we going to achieve that? So, you know, is this going to work? I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on superconductors myself. I gotta, I've got to start getting smarter on this topic. But I think the need is there, and it seems like a valuable research project to see if we can build a, a new type of circuit beyond CMOS. Yeah, and, and what uh, we should mention, what Mannheimer points out, it's not going to be for, for, like, handheld stuff. There's no technology they they're they're even conceiving of that can put a cryogenic cooling system into something like a, a smartphone. So this is only going to be for larger computers, and it's so it's that sort of technology. It's not going to solve everybody's problem with CMOS. There's still going to be a lot of CMOS around, even if this is a smashing success at, at, at the end of this five-year project. Um, it'll it'll solve certain types of problems for certain types of applications, but. Uh, yeah. And then you never know. I, you look at what computing looked like 30 or 40 or 50 years ago and try to project what it's going to look like 30, 40, 50 years from now. It's going to be interesting to, to watch how it develops. And, you know, I think we'll get to exascale somehow. Yeah, I think so, too. It'll it'll. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there somehow. But then the, that path beyond it, I think, is, is really up for grabs at this point. 
Michael, another kind of out there technology that we've looked at from time to time that's related to high performance computing is the concept of artificial intelligence. And I was a big fan of the the Watson project from IBM and watching the system go on Jeopardy and played against it at supercomputing. And now we're seeing Watson get deployed in other commercial ways from IBM. And now what we see is in a related project, uh, some of the, the same overlapping work, although not from IBM, uh, but part of the same grant is going into an open source artificial intelligence engine called Deep Dive that's uh, now available for free download. Right. Deep Dive, it's, it's something that, uh, like you said, was a project that was funded actually by DARPA, in the same initial money that, that funded some of the Watson work. And right, this thing was developed at Stanford, but it's going to be free. It's, it's, well, it is free. It's open source now, and people are actually busy downloading it. You need a little Python and some other tools to work with it, but anybody can use it. Um, and it's a very interesting technology, not quite like Watson, which is more of a question and answering uh, type of uh, engine. This is, this is more a cataloging type of engine where it extracts data and does certain types of analysis and, and is able to curate data the way a human might do uh, in an intelligent manner. That that's exactly right. And if you look at the role of, say, an analyst who's faced with a very large amount of unstructured data, we've got a whole bunch of reports or recordings or or uh, or, or uh, medical records or anything that might have come in in a large unstructured pile. And and you've been telling a human go sift through all of this information and tell me what the high level points of intelligence are. Now you're you're really talking about a catalog effort to go through and find related bits of information, how they relate to each other, build a structure of what you're learning, throw away the useless bits of information that aren't connected to anything, and start to build this kind of intelligence tree. It's coming after us, Michael. We're going to have artificial analysts. So actually, there's, there's already three examples of this being used out in the wild there. One, one is a knowledge base for paleobiologists that went through and, and extracted a lot of uh, paleobiology data and created this this uh, useful database. Another one was extracting some dark data from uh, uh, geology journal articles. Obviously, for geophysicists would be interested in things like this. Um, and this was also done with Deep Dive. And then there was another project, a short project that uh, used uh, enriched Wikipedia with structured data. So it added a, a whole bunch of data on top of the uh, the Wikipedia framework. So those are just three examples, but you could see that this has very general purpose uh, capability to do all sorts of cataloging for all sorts of types of data and different things, although right now, not all data is is being supported. One of the goals there is to, is to sort of expand the different types of data that can, that can be uh, consumed by this uh, framework. Sure, looking at customer records data, shipment data, product data, all kinds of stuff in the business world where this would come up. But you mentioned it's funded by DARPA. You know, obviously there's a military intelligence aspect to this also. If you're sure. looking at things in the Department of Homeland Security, anti-terrorism efforts, where you want to uh, look at uh, all of your signal processing data, all of your intelligence capture, and, and have the the computer do, taking a run at what kind of intelligence do we have available? Uh, you know, th there's a, there's an obvious military play there as well. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, that's definitely one of the areas DARPA would be interested in. But uh, yeah, this does have wide applicability, and people are are downloading these things. A lot of people playing around with it. The, the article in EE Times that we we got some of this information from noted that uh, 10,000 downloads a week uh, were were being done from the site off of uh, off of the deep dive uh, website. Yeah, that, it was a great article in EE Times there summarizing uh, some of the potential usage here. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is it, it's right at the, the heart of this intersection between supercomputing and big data. You can imagine how other uh, mega trends like cloud and Internet of Things start playing into this in terms of just the monumental piles of unstructured data that, that you could look into uh, either in a, a business sense or, or in a defense sense. So, uh, interesting. Interesting to see the the evolution of this Watson-like technology moving uh, artificial intelligence forward. Indeed, very interesting stuff. All right, Michael. Well, that'll wrap up uh, another episode here. We're we're closing in on the end of the year. Uh, you're going to be based in uh, Germany coming up for a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to having you there. We'll see if we can uncover some stories in Europe, uh, and uh, maybe we'll crank out another episode here before we hit the holidays. <laughs> Sounds good, Addison. All right. Thanks a lot, Michael, and thanks to you for listening. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. 